Interwamek Ministries presents part four in the Killing Sacred Cows series, a five-part album. This teaching by Andrew is titled, God's View of Sin. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Today is the beginning of my fourth teaching through a series that I've entitled, Killing Sacred Cows. You know, in a sense, this is a mistitle uh, of this series. It's just talking about the goodness of God, that God loves us, but there are religious traditions, which I'm calling these like sacred cows, that have decreased and diminished our understanding and, and the power that's in understanding that God loves us. So I've been attacking these things. I've already dealt with three traditions, religious traditions, the sovereignty of God, the Old Testament law, and then uh, faith and grace teachings where you take just one to an extreme and you don't balance them together. I've already dealt with that. And now what I'm dealing with is how the body of Christ views sin after you've been born again. Look at this passage of Scripture. This is after the birth of John the Baptist. And if you remember the story, John's father, Zacharias, could not believe that he was going to have a child and that his wife was going to conceive and deliver a child in their old age. And because of it, the angel Gabriel struck him dumb. He was unable to speak. But after John was born, the Lord opened up his mouth and he began to speak and prophesy. And here's just a portion of what Zacharias said. This is in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 76 it says, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. And I just want to pull out this one statement here that the way we get knowledge of salvation is through the remission of sins. Let me turn over here to Ephesians chapter 1. And also this is said in Colossians chapter 1 also. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7, it says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace." So the word redemption and forgiveness of sins are used interchangeably here. And the same thing is done over in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 14. It says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins." So the redemption or remission of our sins is how we get the knowledge of God. If, if we don't understand how God deals with sin, not just prior to salvation, but in the life of a believer, it is going to really hinder us understanding and knowing God. And sad to say, I believe that this is one area that the church has totally missed it in. Again, I am not against the church. I'm a part of the church. I believe in fixing the boat, patching the leaks in the boat from the inside, not from the outside, not dog paddling and being outside of the boat trying to fix it. I am in the church. I am a part of the church. But there are some things that are wrong. And one of them is that I believe that we have misrepresented how God views sin in the life of a believer. Now, I agree with this, that sin is not a desirable thing and that all Christians ought to reject sin and we ought to live holy lives. I agree with that. But I also know that none of us do it perfectly. You know, let me use another verse 
over here in Romans chapter 14. And in verse 23, it says, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Sin isn't only breaking the big ten, the Ten Commandments. You know, not stealing, not committing adultery, and not lying, and bearing false witness, and honoring your father and mother, worshiping no other gods, having idols, honoring the Sabbath day, etc. It's not only the big ten. The Bible here says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Did you know that any time you aren't in faith, if you're in fear, if you're worried, if you're stressed out over things, the Bible says that that's sin. And you put that together with James chapter 4, verse 17, that says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So sin is not only when you break one of the big ten, when you do something wrong, when you are out of faith, which, boy, this right here just uh, is an indictment against every one of us because there's times that all of us get out of faith that we uh, let something get to us and we aren't really standing in faith. But when you put that together with James 4, 17, where it says, to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin, then that means that all of us, even Christians, still have sin. We still are missing it. You know, if you are not loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church, according to Ephesians chapter 5, that's a command. We are supposed to love our wife the way that Christ loved the church. You might do it better than you've done in the past. You might do it better than I've done, but you aren't perfect in this. It's just a part of fallen human nature that we are more self-centered self-focused than we are other people focused and we do not give the due benevolence unto our mate that we should. The scripture also says that the wife is supposed to reverence her husband, respect her husband the same way that Christ, uh, the church is supposed to respect Christ. There may be women who are doing that better than others. You might be doing it better than you've ever done, but there's nobody in here who does it perfectly. So, we all are out of faith at times, which Romans 14, 23 says is sin. We all fail to do all of the good things that we do, uh, and that is sin. So sin is not only when we transgress a direct command, but sin is when we fail to be the person that we're supposed to be. If you look at those definitions, all of us sin. How does this affect the goodness of God? Is God's love and grace for us conditional upon us living holy and getting every sin confessed? Here's another thing. There's many people in the body of Christ that will track with me on everything I've said up to right here. And they'll say, yes, we all fall short. Yes, we aren't the people that we're supposed to be. But as long as you get that sin confessed and under the blood, then God will still deal with you in grace. But that puts a huge burden on you to have every single sin confessed. And again, sin is not only when you break the big ten, when you do something that is in direct disobedience to God, but sin is when you aren't in faith, Romans 14, 23, or if you know to do something good and don't do it, James 4, 17. Those things are also sin. And how are you going to deal with this? If you believe that you have to have every sin confessed and under the blood, that is, you, you can't live that way. And yet this is what most Christians are being taught. 
You just cannot live that way. If I really believed that you had to have every sin confessed, and again, I'm using Romans 14, 23 to say whatsoever is not a faith is sin. I'm using James 4, 17 to say that if you know to do good and if you aren't doing the good things that you know that God has told you to do, that's sin. If you count those things as sin, which the Bible specifically says these failures are sin, you live in a constant state of sin. You know, I, I live by faith. I walk in faith. I do a lot of good things. But could I say that I am in faith 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year? Nope. There are times, I mean, you know, in general things, like I have faith about my salvation. I have faith in certain things. But there's areas that my faith is still growing and developing in. There's things that God is showing me that I'm, um, you know, making adjustments and I'm growing. And I'm stronger in faith today than I was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And if the Lord tarries, I'll be stronger. That means that I'm right now not at the complete development of faith. I'm not perfect. So if you look at Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Did you know in that sense, I have constant sin, failure in my life. I am not the person I'm supposed to be. And if I believed that I had to have every sin confessed and under the blood, it would be impossible for me to just live in a constant state of repenting. I would be focused on all of my failures. That's not healthy. And yet this is where the vast majority of Christians live with, with the constant state of sin. I remember this one guy I was listening to his teaching and he was at the early morning church service. He was the pastor of the church and he was at the early service. It was like 8.30 in the morning and he was preaching something along this line about sin consciousness and how that we just live with this sense of failure and unworthiness and that we come short. And so he asked the people there in the service, he says, how many of you have already sinned today? And it was 8.30 in the morning and nearly every hand in the place went up and his wife's hand went up. And he just stopped and he says, what have you done today? It's only 8.30 in the morning. How have you already sinned? And she just, you know, well, I, I can't think of anything, but I just know that I'm just constantly failing to be the person that I should. And she just lived with this sense of unworthiness, this sense of failure. That is not the way that God wants us to live. But if you believe this doctrine that every sin has to be confessed and under the blood in order for you to have a relationship with God, well, then that's what that leads to. It leads to this constant state of sin, uh, sin consciousness, unworthiness. And that is not the way that God wants us to live. Over in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, the last part of that verse, the verses 1 and 2 were talking about the atonement of Jesus, that it was greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. And the benefit of it is that we should have no more conscience of sin. We should not be sin conscious. And yet the average Christian lives in a sin consciousness, lives in a state of unworthiness that keeps God at arm's length. It's not that we doubt that God has the power. We doubt His willingness to use His power on our behalf because we live with this sense of unworthiness and it goes all the way back to how we believe God views sin in the life of a believer. And let me just say again that if I believed 
that every time you sinned, it somehow or another broke your relationship with God. Now, there's two extremes to this. The ultra-Pentecostals will sit there and say that you totally lose your salvation. If you have, every time you sin, you lose your salvation. And if you were to die before you get that sin confessed and under the blood, you would go to hell. Even though you might have been saved for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you do one sin, have a car wreck, and die on your way home with that sin unconfessed, and you go to hell. Now, that's one extreme, but the exact same principle with lesser consequences. It's like having a stick, you know, and there's two ends to this stick, and they're opposite each other. One end of this extreme doctrine is that if you have an unconfessed sin and die, you go to hell, but a lesser thing, but still the same principle, the same stick, the same uh, uh, concept is that, well, you don't go to hell. You don't lose your salvation every time you sin, but you lose your fellowship. God won't answer your prayers. God won't fellowship with you if you have any sin in your life. That's actually the exact same doctrine with just lesser consequences. One of them over here, you go to hell with an unconfessed sin if you were to die. This one, you don't go, you don't go to hell. You just won't receive any good thing in this life. God won't fellowship with you. He won't bless you. you he won't give you joy and peace. That's the exact same concept with lesser consequences. If I believed that that was true, then I would be doing you a favor the moment you got born again to just kill you. And I know somebody think, well, how would that be a favor? Because if you had to have every sin confessed again, whatsoever isn't a faith is sin. If you know to do something good and you aren't doing it, if you know that you should be studying the Word more than you are and yet you aren't doing it, if you know that you should be giving more than you are and yet you don't do it, if you know that you're supposed to love your wife more than you do, if you know that you're supposed to love your husband more than you do, if you know that you're supposed to be out helping other people and giving and turning the other cheek, all of those things are sin. And if you have to have every sin confessed, and if you were to die with an unconfessed sin in your life and you'd go to hell, I'd be doing you a service to just kill you the moment you got born again because I can guarantee you, you cannot keep every sin confessed. Now, I believe that we should make an attempt to do it. When we see that we're wrong, we need to repent of that and turn from it and turn back to the Lord. But I'm saying you'll never do it perfectly. And this doctrine that you have to have every sin confessed and under the blood is impractical. It can't be done. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, I wish I had time to teach on the whole book. Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I don't think that's so with most people because it goes against this concept of sin consciousness. It's just the opposite. It's showing that Jesus has totally set us free from all of these things, the Old Testament law, the condemnation and the guilt that goes with it. And because that's not the way most people think, therefore most people don't really enjoy the book of Hebrews because it's so contrary to their religious concepts. But this is awesome. And in Hebrews chapter 9, he's talking about the contrast in the Old Testament sacrifices with the one New Testament sacrifice of Jesus. And in the ninth chapter, he makes this comparison many different times that in the Old Testament, they had to offer a blood sacrifice for sins every time they sinned. 
Every time they did something wrong, they had to offer a sacrifice to pay for that sin. And then there was a day of atonement, one day out of the year, where there was a special offering made to cover all of the sins that they didn't even realize that they had done, to cover anything that they might have missed, anything that they forgot to confess. There was just a constant flowing of blood. Like when Solomon dedicated the temple, I can't even remember, but it was tens of thousands of animals that were sacrificed and just thousands and thousands of animals were killed to atone for the sins of all of the people. In the Old Testament, there was a constant flowing of blood, but in the New Testament, it's different. In the New Testament... One sacrifice of Jesus dealt with sins once and for all. Look at some of this in Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood. Talking about the blood of Jesus. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Remember Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 says redemption is the forgiveness of sins. So this is saying he obtained eternal forgiveness of sins for us. And the emphasis here is on the word once. It says he entered once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption or eternal forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not in heaven reapplying the blood. And every time a Christian sins and then they repent, oh God, I'm sorry, he has to reapply the blood. You know, right here in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about that he is seated at the Father's right hand. That's a picture that he is not any longer working. He is not accomplishing redemption. He said on the cross, it is finished. He had done it. He made the atonement and he is now seated at the Father's right hand. He is not constantly reapplying His blood every time you sin and then confess it and He's got to redo it. No, it says He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know, the reason that people don't understand this is because, again, they don't understand that we have a new covenant. They have mixed the old covenant and the new together. And in the old covenant... There was a sacrifice that had to be made every single time you sinned. And the reason is because Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. God told Adam, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And so the people had to constantly be shown that that sin means that you should die. The wages of that sin is death. But because of the goodness of God, He allowed them to kill an animal instead of killing the person. But there was still this constant reminder. And the reason is because that Old Testament people weren't truly saved. Their sins weren't blotted out and totally eradicated. They were covered. In a sense, God was paying for Old Testament people's sins on credit. The sacrifice had not been made. And animal sacrifices were just pictures, shadows of the true sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And it was pictured in the Old Testament by killing all of these animals. But it says here in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It was impossible 
They were only symbols. They were shadows, types, pictures, but they did not really do anything. And the next verse here, Hebrews 10, 5 says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering for sin thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. You know, the way it's stated here in the King James is a little awkward sometimes. People don't catch this, but what he's saying is he quoted an Old Testament sacrifice that God wasn't really after the, the death of animals. They were only pictures and shadows, but He prepared a body for His Son, and Jesus became the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. And so He goes on to say, "...and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure." They did not really please God. They were really for our benefit to constantly remind us that the wages of sin is death, that we have to have something die for us to atone for our sins. And then he says in verse 7, And then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will, O God. And so it says that he's taken away the Old Testament sacrifices and he himself would become the sacrifice for our sins. And so now go back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal Redemption for us. Man, if words mean anything, He entered in once, not multiple times. You know, it says He's seated at the Father's right hand. If the concept that most Christians have, that every time you sin, that is a sin that is out from under the blood and that you've got to confess it and then Jesus has to apply the blood to it. If that, is, if that was true, then there would be no such thing as Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. He would be working constantly. You know, there are millions, possibly billions of Christians on this planet who sin every single day and confess some type of failure and ask for forgiveness and cleansing. And if Jesus had to apply His blood billions of times every single day, there would be no such thing as sinning sitting at the Father's right hand. He would be constantly reapplying that blood. But this says He entered in once. He atoned for your sins forever. It says that you've obtained eternal redemption. Man, that's powerful. If words mean anything, this ought to change the way that we look at things. He entered in once, not multiple times, and He obtained eternal redemption. Not just redemption up until the moment that you got saved and then the next time you sin, you lose that salvation or you lose the benefits of that salvation and you got to confess it and pray through and get born again again, get saved all over again. No. He, he dealt with your sins past, present, and even sins you hadn't committed. And again, I say, somebody, how could He do that? All of our sins were future sins when Jesus died and paid for it. Jesus paid for future sins, not just sins up until the moment you got saved, but even the sins that you haven't committed yet. He has blotted out all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins. And it goes on down in verse 15, Hebrews 9, 15. For, and for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In verse 12, it says you got eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, you've got eternal 
inheritance. Did you know that the average Christian does not believe in that? They just believe in momentarily being redeemed or momentary inheritance. And then the next time you sin, you lose all of that until you confess it and repent and get back into the grace of God. That doctrine diminishes and makes the goodness of God of no effect in your life. Again, I say that if I really believe that you had to have every sin confessed and you understand that sin is not only breaking the big ten, but sin is not doing the good that you're supposed to do. Sin is being out of faith, Romans 14, 23. If I believe that, I would be doing you a service to kill you the moment you got born again before you had time to mess it up and sin. I might go to hell, but it's the only way you'd ever get to heaven. You, you need to recognize God forgave you and you got one sacrifice. He entered in once and made an atonement for you, not only for you, but for all people, all times. All sin has already been paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everybody's sins have been paid for. And somebody says, so are you saying that everybody's saved? No, because not everybody puts faith in what was done. Grace has provided salvation for everybody. The atonement has been made. Jesus entered into the holy place one time and obtained eternal redemption for all people, for all times. But you have to access that by faith. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it says, wherein we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. You access the grace of God by faith. And that word access there in Romans chapter 5, verse 2 is the exact same word that we get admission from. Like if you go to some place and if they have an admission price, you have to buy a ticket and that gives you access, admission into that performance or whatever. Likewise, God has provided salvation, but faith is the thing that is your ticket that allows you to partake of it. If you don't put faith in what God has already done by grace, then even though that the provision is made and that the sins have been dealt with, it won't be applied to your account until you access it by faith. So you have to respond to God's grace. But God has, through one sacrifice, obtained eternal redemption and eternal inheritance. You know, this is just amazing to me. What part of eternal do we not understand? Where do we get this concept that we are only forgiven up until the next time we sin? We are only born again up until the next time we sin. Did you know people who believe that kind of stuff? And I've known people who believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you have to pray through your backslid is the terminology that's used. There's only a couple of times in the Bible that the word backslide is used and it's talking about a black backsliding heifer over in Isaiah and different places. This has become a religious doctrine, a religious tradition that makes the goodness of God of none effect. And it makes it all dependent upon you being worthy of all of God's goodness. And that's wrong. You do not lose your salvation. You don't backslide. And if you die uh, before you get that sin confessed, you go to hell or you lose all of the benefits of your salvation. That is not true. 
I've known people who believe that stuff. And if you were to press them and say, well, are you perfect? Do you have every sin confessed? Do you do everything right? They would immediately say, well, no, I'm not perfect, but I don't break the big ones. You know, in other words, there's some sins that are so grievous that you can't do those. You lose your salvation if you commit those. But the small sins, like, you know, just not being the person that you're supposed to be, not loving your wife the way you're supposed to, you can get by with those things. But man, if you go commit adultery, and if you died in a car wreck on your way home before you had time to confess that adultery, you'd go to hell. And there's people that believe that. But if I was to press them, so then you don't have any sin. You're perfect. Everything in your life is perfect. You're walking in faith perfectly. You're doing everything. Oh, no, I, I still am not the person. I'm still sinning. I'm still short, but I don't do these big sins. See, you're missing the principle. James 2.10 says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you're going to adopt the fact that sin causes you to lose your salvation and you've got to repent of that sin and get it under the blood before you can be back in right standing with God. If you adopt that belief, then any sin would do it. Not just the big 10, but any sin. If you go 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone, you broke the law and God told us to obey the laws of the land. So if you're going to do this, and say that you die and you go to hell if you have any unconfessed sin, then speeding would cause you to go to hell because that's breaking the law. God told you to obey the laws of the land. Having unforgiveness in your heart is equal to murder is what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 5. And on and on you could go with this. If you really believe that some unconfessed sin causes you to either lose your salvation or lose the benefits of your salvation until you get it confessed and you have to pray through and get born again again, which there is no mention of that in Scripture, well then, it would be impossible to live. It would be impossible for anybody to be saved. It would be totally, you know, nobody could have any assurance of your salvation. Have I forgotten something? Did I leave something out? Have I got some sin in my life that I'm not even aware of? That's just intenable. You can't live that way. It doesn't work. It says here that you have eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. You do not lose your salvation nor the benefits of your salvation because of you sin. Now let me say this. I am not encouraging you to sin. Some people are thinking, man, this is great news. I can just go live in sin. No, if you go live in sin, you're stupid. Because the Bible says in Romans 6, 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you yield to the one who inspired that sin, the devil, and Satan came only to steal, kill, and to destroy. John chapter 10, verse 10. If you do that, he's going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. It's stupid for you to live in sin. It gives Satan an inroad into your life. You're going to suffer. There are consequences to sin, not from God, because God has forgiven you of your sin. He's not holding it against you, but there are still consequences to sin. You give Satan an inroad into your life. If you were to take what I'm saying and say, oh man, this is great news. My sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And so you just go out and rob a bank because after all, you're forgiven. God's going to still love you. It's true. If you are truly born again, 
God would still love you if you robbed a bank. And you know what? The whole time you're sitting in your prison cell, rotting away in prison, you could have fellowship with God and God could love you because He's not imputing that sin unto you. But that's stupid. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go to jail? Why do you want to hurt other people? If you're truly born again, you would never want to do that kind of stuff. He changes your desires. But if you do fail in some area, God will still love you in your prison cell. As you're awaiting execution for murder, you could have fellowship with God. God could forgive you. But there are consequences to that sin. You're stupid if you go live in sin. But I'm trying to say God loves you, stupid. He loves you despite the fact that you're doing these things, but it's, you don't want to do it. But you need to have this assurance that when you've sinned, that God thank you that you've forgiven this sin. You know, my sister, she's now gone to be with the Lord. But uh, she loved the Lord. She saw people raised from the dead. She saw some great miracles. She loved the Lord. But she had a daughter that I guarantee you could just make a saint cuss. I mean, this girl was rebellious, caused all kinds of problems. And anyway, my sister was one time uh, fixing supper for her husband. He was a professor at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he was bringing another professor home for supper. So she was busy getting supper ready for her husband and guest as they came home. And her daughter just came in and got to pushing all of her buttons and saying the wrong things. And anyway, they got into an argument and my sister Joyce just hauled off and hit her daughter and knocked her flat of her back. And when she did that, man, she felt so terrible about doing this to her daughter. And uh, she ran upstairs, threw herself across the bed, and she cried out to God. And she says, God, you've got to help me. If I start crying and repenting over this, I'm not going to come out of here until tomorrow morning. I've got company coming. I've got to get back to fixing supper. God, help. And you know what the Lord spoke to her? He said, Joyce, when you were eight years old and you made me your Savior and asked me to forgive you of your sin, says, I knew that you'd do this. I knew it would happen and I forgave you of it back decades ago. It's already dealt with. I'm not upset with you. It's forgiven. And you know what this did? It allowed my sister, it didn't allow her to go down and just slap her daughter around because after all, she's forgiven, so man, just go down and hit her. No, she went down and apologized, humbled, humbled herself and said, I'm sorry, you provoked me, but you know, I was wrong in my response. And she repented to her daughter and she was able to get on and deal with things. And the burden, the sting of that sin was taken away because Jesus had already paid for it. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to encourage anybody to go live in sin. If you live in sin, you're giving place to the devil and it's just stupid to do it. But I'm saying God loves you, stupid, and that you can break the dominion of that sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4 that sin shall not have dominion over us for we are not under the law, but under grace. I think maybe that's Romans chapter 6. But the dominion of sin is broken by understanding the goodness of God. It's not encouraged. I'm not encouraging anybody to go live in sin. I'm not setting you free to sin. I'm setting you free from sin. And if you have truly been born again, you have a desire to live for God. You have a desire to be holy. It says that in 1 John chapter 3 
verses 1 through 3. And in verse 3, after talking about all the goodness of God, that we are now the children of God, it says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you truly have been born again and God has changed your heart, you aren't looking for an excuse to sin. You are... You are condemned over your failures and I'm trying to set you free from that condemnation and guilt so that you can live for God, not so that you can go live in sin. If anybody would take what I'm saying and say, man, I love this. I have been eternally forgiven and I, I can go live in sin because my sins are all forgiven. You aren't born again. You ought to get saved. If you're truly born again, you aren't looking for an excuse to go live in sin. You're trying to overcome that sin and this will set you free from sin. It will break the dominion of sin in your life. It will not set you free to sin. That's a huge difference. Down here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So verse 12 says you have one sacrifice that produced eternal redemption, forgiveness of sins. And then verse 15 says that one sacrifice produced eternal inheritance. And again, there's so many people that their salvation is in jeopardy every single day. And they're fearful that if they do something wrong, they lose their salvation. This says you have eternal inheritance. And I wish I had time to just read all of these verses, but for time's sake, let me skip down and read here in verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that He should offer Himself often, now remember everything I've been saying. One sacrifice produced eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. And that's the context. It says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If it was done the way it was done in the Old Testament, every time you sinned, you had to offer a sin offering. When a woman had a child, she had to offer a, an offering for her cleansing. Every time you did anything, you had to offer a sacrifice. It was constant. But in the New Testament, it is not that way. There is one sacrifice for sins forever. So back in verse 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. If he was operating the way the Old Testament priest did, he would have had to have died many times. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here again is that phrase, once. This is the third time, I think, in this chapter that he said once Jesus did this. Once Jesus died for our sins. So once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him will he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So he's saying that since people only die once and there's only one punishment, you could have multiple sins. Some people do this sin, some people that, but the the wage of sin, the singular payment for all sin is death. 
And so there is just one payment. Jesus paid for that. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world. And His one death atoned for all sins, past, present, and future, all sins of all people. Man, this is huge. This is huge. And as a whole, the body of Christ does not understand this. And they are living under a separation that's not imposed by God. It's by their own religious traditions make them feel separated from God. You know, I'm going to come right back to this, but let me turn over here to 1 John chapter 3 and read some verses that go right along with what we're saying. And it says in verse 19, 1 John 3, 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Now think about this. This says you have to assure your heart. In other words, you have to remove the doubt, the condemnation, the guilt. And you have to encourage and assure your heart. Most Christians think that if I was in right standing with God, I'd just intuitively know it. I would have such joy and peace it would happen. I don't have to convince myself of it. This is saying you have to assure your heart. You have to convince yourself that you are of God. Why? Because of this religious teaching that has made sin something that every time you sin, you're separated from God and that somehow or another God is either going to totally reject you or at least not enforce all of the benefits of salvation because you got some sin in your life. Man, that's not right. And you have to assure your heart that even though you don't deserve it, that God still loves you and that God's power and, and His things are available to you. I hate to even say this, but let me put a parenthetical phrase. Don't forget where I am. And let me just say this, that this doesn't mean that you just go live in sin because after all, I'm going to assure my heart. No, if you live in sin, Satan uses that sin to condemn you. And so as much as you can, you live as holy as you possible can, possibly can so that you don't even have to deal with this defiled conscience and deal with this. But you will never do it perfectly. And for that reason, now the end of the parenthetical phrase, for that reason... You have to assure your heart when you do mess up and you have to convince yourself that you are still of God and God is answering your prayer. And look at this in verse 20. He says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Notice it's not God condemning it. It's your own heart. It's our own religious tradition. You know, people give you what you deserve. If you take what I'm saying about the grace and the goodness of God and you go out here and start speeding and the cop pulls you over and you say, hey, it doesn't matter if I speed, God still loves me. That's absolutely true. God does still love you, but you know what? That cop will give you a ticket. People will deal with you based on performance. Satan is going to deal with you based on performance. There are still consequences to sin. And anybody who would take what I'm saying and say, man, this just frees me to go live in sin, you did not hear what I've said. Your heart's wrong. You need to get born again. I am not encouraging sin, but I'm saying that all of us do fall short regardless of how hard you try. You know, I've been walking with God for 49 years, seeking God with my whole heart, spending hours every day studying the Word, praying. and Man, I've been seeking God passionately for 49 years. I'm into my 50th year of walking with the Lord. And yet, you know what? The God still shows me things in my life that are wrong. I remember last summer, I saw my response to something was not the way that I knew it should have been. And as I prayed about it, 
I just said, God, I've been 40, at that time, 48 years, and I'm still making some of these same stupid mistakes. And you know what? If I didn't understand the things that I'm telling you and know how to assure my heart and realize that God's not the one that's condemning me, I guarantee you I could have been condemned. I could have felt like, God, what's the use? I've been at it for 48 years and still hadn't got it all figured out. It says that our heart condemns us, not God, but God is greater than our heart and knows all things. In other words, God doesn't share your viewpoint, your opinion. You may be condemned and you may feel like, God, how could you love me? The truth is He loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. He loves you in spite of all of your failures. God has the right attitude. In verse 21 it says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence towards God. So if your heart is condemning you and yet you're born again, you need to recognize that that is your own conscience that's condemning you. It's your misunderstanding of the Scriptures. You're living under the Old Testament law. It's the enemy, the devil, who's coming and he's the accuser of the brethren. But God is not the one that's condemning you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is no condemnation from God. It's not God that's condemning you. You uh, have had your sins paid for once for all time. Boy, those are awesome, awesome truths. Now look at this down in chapter 10. In verse 1, it says, For the law, this is back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never which those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? There's a question mark there right in the middle of this verse. This is a question. And what it's doing is saying that the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't make anything perfect. They were only a type and a shadow. If they had have worked, if, if the sacrifices, if the killing of an animal and shedding their blood could have forgiven your sins, then they would have quit offering the sacrifices. The very fact that the sacrifice has to be made over and over and over and over is an indication that it wasn't real. It was symbolic. It was only a picture of something to come. But the sacrifice of Jesus is real. And because of that, one sacrifice dealt with your sins forever. For the person who thinks that you are only forgiven until the next time you sin, and now you've got to get that sin under the blood, in a sense what you're doing is saying that the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't real. It wasn't effective. It didn't work. It only worked temporarily. See, the contrast is the reason it was done over and over in the Old Testament is because it was only symbolic. But in the New Testament, we got the reality, and that's the reason we don't have animal sacrifices as part of our Christian worship is because Jesus atoned for our sin, not only past sins, but even future sins. He dealt with all sins, past, present, and future. And the last part of this uh, second verse in chapter 10 says, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. This is something that the average Christian doesn't even think is possible or even positive. The average Christian would think to go around and not be sin conscious, that's ungodly. The average Christian has so embraced a sin consciousness, an unworthiness mindset, 
that they feel that this is actually a very godly thing to talk, just constantly be feeling about how unworthy that they are. I do believe that you need to come to a place where you recognize it's not your goodness, it's not your greatness that causes God to do anything, that it's all by grace. You do need to acknowledge that, but to live under a sin consciousness is not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. This is saying that if the sacrifice could have worked, they would have had no more conscience of sin. And I know that there's people that you, the only way that you've ever related to God is a fear of punishment, a fear of rejection. If you're the ultra Pentecostal, a fear of losing your salvation, or if you're one of those that believe in once saved, always saved, you wouldn't lose your salvation, but you would lose all of the benefits of your salvation. And it's this fear of losing these things from God that keeps you living holy. And people who have been programmed that way and have lived that way their entire life, when I remove that fear of rejection from God, their first thought is, well, then why serve God? What is going to keep a person living holy? You know, love is a greater motivation than fear. And you can get to where you love God so much that it's the love of Christ that constrains you. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. The love of Christ constrains him. You know, I'm so thrilled that God called me to preach this message of the goodness and the grace of God for multiple reasons, because it's such a blessing to me, etc. But I'm glad one of the reasons is because People who sit here and think, well, you're just encouraging sin and you're allowing people to go live in sin. What you're preaching will produce sin in people. You can't say that and look at me. And again, I'm not a perfect example. I stand before God by the grace of God. But for those of you who criticize this message and say that I'm encouraging sin, you can't look at my life and say that. I'm living a holier life than nearly any one of you who would criticize me. And I'm not saying that for my benefit when it comes to me and the Lord, you know, who wants to be the best sinner that ever got rejected? I don't approach God on the basis of my holiness. I approach Him through Jesus, and that's all the claim to anything I've got is my faith in Jesus. But for those of you who are say, criticizing this message and saying it's encouraging sin, it hadn't encouraged me to go live in sin. Man, I'm living a separated life. I'm seeking God. Man, I spend, I spend lots of time praying and studying the Word and doing things, and I, I reject other things. I am living a holy life. I, I've just turned 68 years old, and I've never said a word of profanity in my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. I am living a holy life. I know some of you are thinking, coffee? Are you saying that coffee is sin? No, the Bible says in Mark chapter 16, verse 18, that you can drink any deadly thing, and it shall not harm you. So you can drink coffee. I'm just saying, I've lived a separated life and this has not encouraged me to go live in sin. Getting rid of a sin consciousness, an unworthiness consciousness, has not caused me to go live in sin. But what it's done, it's made me so appreciative of God that the love of Christ has constrained me to live for God. I live for God out of love. And yet there's people that think, no, if you tell people it just about the goodness and the love of God, it'll encourage them to go live in sin. That's like telling me that if I go buy my wife flowers and candy and give gifts and show her how much I love her, that that's going to encourage her to go commit adultery. 
No, it's just the opposite. The more I show love towards my wife, the more it makes her want to love me back. It's, it's weird. Only religion can make you think that people understanding the goodness and the love of God will cause them to go live in sin. Now, I will admit that there are some people who have blamed the grace teaching and said that it's okay for them to go live in sin because, man, they're free and stuff. But I question whether they really have a true relationship with the Lord. You know, this friend of mine was ministering in his church and he was talking along these lines and he told the people, he said, you know what, I know that some of you smoke and you don't... Uh, you." put breath mints in so that nobody will know. You try and hide it. You wouldn't smoke out here in front of the church. He says, God knows all of these things. He says, I'm not encouraging you to smoke, but if you smoke, you shouldn't feel condemned about it. You know, just if you're going to smoke, smoke outside of the church right there. And so sure enough, the next week, people came to church and there was people standing out there smoking a cigarette and people came in and said, see, pastor, what you did. You've encouraged these people to go smoke. And he says, you go out there and ask them. Who started smoking since I preached that message last week? And there wasn't a single person that started smoking. It was just people who were already doing it, who were hiding it, and were under guilt and condemnation that now they got rid of the condemnation and they weren't ashamed of it anymore. And that's the first step to getting free. And I don't know what the end result of it is, but I have heard other stories about people that just... I remember Keith Moore one time, I think it was Keith Moore, uh, told a person to just who's trying to stop smoking, he says, every time you light up, say, I'm the righteousness of God. Now see, some people will misunderstand what we're saying and they'll sit there and say, so you're, you're just encouraging people that they can go smoke, they can drink, they can do anything and it's okay. No, but I'm just saying that they are still the righteousness of God and God's not mad at them. And I think it was Keith Moore told this person, every time you light up, just say, I'm the righteousness of God. And he said, I can't do that. I know it's wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. And he says, you need to recognize that God still loves you and that you're the righteousness of God. So anyway, this guy, every time he lit a cigarette, he started saying, I'm the righteousness of God. And I forget the length of time, but it was a relatively short period of time, a week or two, something like that. Eventually, this guy was lighting a cigarette and he says, I'm the righteousness of God. And all of a sudden he thought, I am the righteousness of God. I don't have to do this. And he just threw that cigarette away and that was the end of it. And he was able to overcome that failure in his life. I'm not encouraging sin, but I am saying that the blood of Jesus paid for all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins, and you should have no more sin consciousness. You should not be walking around feeling condemned and unworthy. You should assure your heart with the things that I'm saying. Take these verses. Read uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 and assure your heart that you are still in right standing with God. Man, that is huge. And then look at this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. It says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, it's the same thing. Remember that men are the ones that put the chapter and verse divisions in here so for the point of reference. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the 10th chapter isn't a new teaching or separate. It's in the same letter. It's the same context. And here he is saying one time again that Jesus once for all sanctified us. Look at that. In verse 10 it says, By the which will we are sanctified. The word sanctified means to make holy. 
You know, there are certain religious groups that they have saints and they canonize saints. And, and saints to some religious people is like the, you know, the premium Christians. It's like a, an elite group, a special deal. But the scripture teaches that we are all sanctified. The word sanctified means to make holy or to set apart. We are all sanctified. Every born again Christian is a saint, sanctified. This whole thing of making certain groups of people somehow or another holier than others is not scriptural. We were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, it's going back to this whole thing. In the old covenant, you were only sanctified or made holy or in right standing with God until the next time you sin. But here it says you were made uh, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, it just is amazing to me how that people can see this and yet it doesn't change what they believe. And yet, you know, I've come to realize that most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. <laughs> They're going to believe what they believe regardless of what the Bible says. You know, back in the beginning of my ministry when I was pastoring in Childress, Texas, I was painting a house to help make some money and, and subsidize my ministry when it was getting off the ground. And I remember I was working for this one lady. She was a Baptist lady. And I painted her house for like two weeks. And I spent a lot of time visiting with her and talking to her. And um, she had heard that I was raised a Baptist, but that I left the Baptist church. And I was pastoring a church in that town that was a non-denominational church. And so anyway, after you know a week or two of this, she says, you know, we need people like you in the Baptist church. Why did you ever leave the Baptist church? And I said, well, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they asked me to leave. And she says, well, are you talking about speaking in tongues? And I said, well, that's not all that there is. I said, but yes, I spoke in tongues, but there's much more to that than just speaking in tongues. She says, well, they'd have asked you to leave my Baptist church too. And I said, but how could you say that? And I turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, I believe it's verse 39, where it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And I showed her that verse. I said, right here, it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And this woman looked at me just as serious as a heart attack. And she said, hey, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. <laughs> and when she said that, it was basically the end of my conversation. Where How do you minister to a person who doesn't even believe the Bible? They don't take what the Scripture says. And this is what I'm saying to you. It says all of these different places. This is about five or six times in just a few verses that the Scripture has said Jesus entered in once and obtained eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal inheritance. Since you only die once, He died once. And He made one sacrifice for sins forever. And now it says that through we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How can you not understand that Jesus dealt with all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins? They're dealt with. You do not lose your salvation, nor do you lose the benefits of your salvation if you don't do everything right. I just, it just amazes me how people can see these things and yet it doesn't change their behavior. Now, I can understand a person who has never heard these things and all they've heard is religion and that they therefore have a wrong concept. But once you hear it, 
This is so powerful. This is, this is amazing. It either has to change you or you have to just harden yourself against the Word of God. I tell you, these are powerful statements. And so he goes on to say in verse 11, And every praise, priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Notice it's talking about that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. I have had some people uh, counter me on uh, Hebrews 10.10 where it says we've been sanctified through the offering of body of Jesus Christ once for all. And they've said that doesn't mean once for all time. It's talking about once for all people. Every person is saved by the one sacrifice of Jesus, but that sacrifice of Jesus has to be offered many, many, many different times for each individual. But if you read it in context, just two verses later, he says, this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, not just for all people, but for all time. One sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Man, this is phenomenal. One offering perfected you forever. It says in verse 10 that you were sanctified, set apart through that one offering. And then verse 14 says, if you have been sanctified, you have been perfected forever. Wow. And yet the average Christian doesn't get this. And you know, it, the, the number one reason that I think that people struggle with this is because they don't understand what I call spirit, soul, and body. They think that this change is in the physical realm. And they look and they're still the same. If you were fat before you got saved, you'll be fat after you get saved. Or they will search their mental, emotional part. And if they were stupid before they got saved, they still don't understand the same things they didn't understand before they got saved. And they can't see this change in their body or in their soul. And so they think, well, I just can't see this. I don't understand it. But the thing that set me free is to understand that you have a spirit soul and body. You aren't only a body and a soul, a personality part. You also have a spirit. And that spirit is the part of you that was changed. And John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It was your spirit that was changed. And so when it says that your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever... This isn't something that you can see in the mirror. It's not something that you can feel in your emotions. But according to the scripture, it is who you are. When you got born again, your spirit is completely brand new. God is a spirit. He's looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you are sanctified and perfected forever. And it also says over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. I mean, I'm not sure that I could quote that correctly. So let me, let me turn over and read it to you. This is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, 
THE GOSPEL OF YOUR SALVATION, IN WHOM ALSO AFTER THAT YOU BELIEVED, YOU WERE SEALED WITH THAT HOLY SPIRIT OF PROMISE. SO YOUR SPIRIT WAS CREATED IN RIGHTEOUSNESS AND TRUE HOLINESS. EPHESIANS 4.24 SAYS THAT. YOU WERE FORGIVEN OF ALL SIN, PAST, PRESENT, AND FUTURE, AND YOU WERE CREATED. NOTICE IT DIDN'T SAY THAT YOU GROW INTO THIS, THAT THIS IS AN ACQUIRED THING. NO, YOU WERE CREATED, RIGHTEOUS, AND TRULY HOLY, AND THEN THE MOMENT YOU BELIEVED, YOU WERE VACUUM PACKED, JUST shoom, SEALED BY THE HOLY SPIRIT. AND NOW WHEN A CHRISTIAN SINS, SINS ENTERS INTO YOUR BODY AND GIVES SATAN AN INROAD INTO YOUR BODY WITH SICKNESS, WITH LIKE IF YOU GO SIN AND ROB A BANK, YOU COULD BE ARRESTED AND PUT IN JAIL. IF YOU SPEED, YOU COULD HAVE A CAR WRECK AND YOU COULD DIE AND THINGS COULD HAPPEN. YOU COULD GET A TICKET. IT CAN AFFECT YOU PHYSICALLY. IT ALSO ENTERS INTO YOUR SOULISH REALM. IT CAN AFFECT YOUR CONSCIENCE AND IT CAN DEFILE YOUR CONSCIENCE AND MAKE YOU FULL OF GUILT AND CONDEMNATION AND THINGS LIKE THIS. BUT SIN DOES NOT PENETRATE THE SEAL THAT IS AROUND YOUR SPIRIT. YOUR SPIRIT RETAINS ITS RIGHTEOUSNESS AND HOLINESS. AND SINCE GOD IS A SPIRIT, JOHN 4, 24, AND HE LOOKS AT YOU AND DEALS WITH YOU IN SPIRIT AND IN TRUTH, THEN GOD IS JUSTIFIED TO LOVE YOU EVEN WHEN YOU SINNED BECAUSE YOUR SPIRIT DIDN'T PARTICIPATE. YOUR SPIRIT IS STILL RIGHTEOUS AND HOLY. IT'S SEALED. AND THAT'S WHAT THIS IS TALKING ABOUT. YOU HAVE BEEN SANCTIFIED AND PERFECTED FOREVER. AND JUST TO PROVE THAT TO YOU, LET'S TURN OVER TO HEBREWS CHAPTER 12. REMEMBER AGAIN THAT IT'S MEN THAT PUT THE CHAPTER AND VERSE DIVISIONS IN THE BIBLE SO THAT WE COULD REFERENCE THINGS. BUT IN VERSE 22, THIS IS HEBREWS 12, 22, BUT YE ARE COME UNTO MOUNT ZION AND UNTO THE CITY OF THE LIVING GOD, THE HEAVENLY JERUSALEM, AND TO AN INNUMERABLE COMPANY OF ANGELS, TO THE GENERAL ASSEMBLY AND CHURCH OF THE FIRSTBORN WHICH ARE WRITTEN IN HEAVEN, AND TO GOD THE JUDGE OF ALL, AND TO THE SPIRITS OF JUST MEN MADE PERFECT. IN CONTEXT, IT SAYS IT'S YOUR SPIRIT THAT IS MADE PERFECT. GO BACK TO HEBREWS 10, 14, FOR BY ONE OFFERING HE HATH PERFECTED FOREVER THEM THAT ARE SANCTIFIED. YOUR SPIRIT ISN'T PERFECT UNTIL THE NEXT TIME YOU SIN AND THEN IT BECOMES IMPERFECT AND YOU'VE GOT TO CONFESS IT AND GET IT UNDER THE BLOOD AND GET BACK INTO RELATIONSHIP WITH GOD. YOUR SPIRIT IS SANCTIFIED AND PERFECTED FOREVER. FOREVER. WHAT PART OF FOREVER DO WE NOT UNDERSTAND? SANCTIFIED AND PERFECTED FOREVER. MAN, THIS IS GREAT NEWS. IF YOU REALLY UNDERSTOOD THIS, THEN THE LITTLE STATEMENT ABOUT GOD LOVES YOU WOULD HAVE SO MUCH MORE POWER AND IMPACT IN YOUR LIFE. IF YOU REALLY KNEW HOW MUCH GOD LOVED YOU AND IF RELIGIOUS TRADITION DIDN'T VOID IT AND MAKE IT OF NO EFFECT, AND IF YOU UNDERSTOOD HE LOVED YOU SO MUCH THAT HE NOT ONLY SAVED YOU THE MOMENT YOU CAME TO HIM, BUT HE LOVES YOU AND HAS FORGIVEN YOU AND SEALED YOU AND HE'S NEVER GOING TO CHANGE. GOD'S A SPIRIT. HE'S LOOKING AT YOU IN THE SPIRITUAL REALM AND YOUR SPIRIT'S PERFECT. IF YOU UNDERSTOOD THAT, MAN, IT WOULD SET YOU SO FREE THAT YOU WOULD LIVE HOLIER ACCIDENTALLY THAN YOU EVER HAVE ON PURPOSE BEFORE. THAT IS AWESOME, AWESOME, AWESOME. LET ME TURN OVER AND DEAL WITH 1 JOHN CHAPTER 1 AND VERSE 9. LET ME JUST SAY THAT, YOU KNOW, I WISHED I WISH THAT THIS VERSE WASN'T SO GROUND INTO PEOPLE. IT'S NOT BECAUSE I HAVE ANY PROBLEMS WITH WHAT THE SCRIPTURE SAYS, BUT IT'S THE RELIGIOUS TRADITIONS ASSOCIATED WITH IT. 
And people use this verse to make people sin conscious. Notice it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And people will take this and just say that, see, you have to confess it. It's conditional upon you confessing that sin. Well, let me once again just use some of this same reasoning. If you have to confess your sins to get them forgiven, what would happen if you forget one? What if you forget that sin? Does that mean it's not forgiven? Does that mean that you lose your salvation or that you lose the benefits of your salvation? See, again, this is something that can't be lived because we all fail. We all sin. We all... There are some of you that right now, the way you're thinking about me is sin. Some of the things that I've said, it's rubbed your religion the wrong way and you're thinking bad things about me and I guarantee you, if you're born again, I'm your brother and you are going to have to learn how to live with me and you, you, you know what? That's sin. If you really believe that you've got to get every sin confessed before you receive salvation between you and the Lord, well, then that's something that you just couldn't live. Again, I say I'd be doing you a service the moment you got born again to kill you. Maybe that would send me to hell, but it's the only way you'd ever stay saved if you had to have every sin confessed. You know, there's multiple ways to look at this. I've got people that I respect who interpret this as this is talking about before you get born again and when you confess your sins and get born again, that's a one-time deal. But after you're saved, you don't have to get every sin confessed. That's an attempt to try and deal with some of the difficulties in this. But the context of this passage, I believe, forbids that. Plus, in the very first place, did you know you don't even have to confess your sins to get saved? Some people teach that. They'll tell you, well, just confess your sins and you can be saved. Well, you do have to acknowledge you have sinned and that you need a Savior, but you don't have to confess your sins. Matter of fact, in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, you can find where the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say, confess your sins and you'll be forgiven. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved in your house. They didn't tell them to confess their sins. There's no place in Scripture. Matter of fact, this is the only time that I'm aware of in the New Testament that we are admonished to confess our sins. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying this is the only instruction, and yet this has been amplified to such a degree that the average Christian just does this constantly. Now, it does say over in the book of James that we're supposed to confess our sins one to another, but I'm talking about confessing our sins to God. There's always time for us to repent and, and confess that we've wronged somebody else and stuff like that. So what is this talking about? I'm running out of time. I'm going to have to condense this. But in a nutshell, here's what I believe, that our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future because of all of these verses I've been using in Hebrews chapter 9, 10, and 12. I believe that our sins have been forgiven and that God has sealed me by the Holy Spirit and that sin doesn't penetrate and get into that spirit. I never get defiled. I never lose the holiness and the righteousness that God gave me. It is eternal forgiveness. It is eternal redemption. So then why confess my sin? Because Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants ye are, Servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Even though God has forgiven me and my spirit is cleansed and pure and it is not defiled by sin, 
my body gets defiled by sin and my mind and emotions get defiled by sin. I give Satan inroad. I become his servant, not losing my salvation, but he just dominates me because I've yielded to him. When I realize that, when I realize that I gave Satan place in my life, he now has a legal right because I've yielded myself to him. He has right to dominate me with sickness, with depression, with poverty, because I cooperated with him. You know, for instance, a person who's believing God for prosperity and yet they aren't acting on the Word of God. They don't tithe. They don't give. By doing that, you just ate all of your seed. God still loves you. Your spirit is still righteous and holy and pure, but you have given Satan the right to oppress you. You haven't believed God. You're operating in fear and unbelief and you have released the power of the devil into your life. When you recognize that and you realize that you have done the wrong thing, how do you change that situation? You confess it. And the word confess right here in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 just means to say the same thing. In other words, you, God said, give and it shall be given unto you. Bring the tithes into the storehouse, etc. All of these scriptures. But you said, I don't have enough money to give. I need this money. And so you went this way. God was going this way. When you finally realize that you've done wrong, and Satan now has a right to oppress you because you've been obeying his fear and unbelief instead of operating in faith. How do you solve that job problem? You quit going your way. You turn and you confess, God, you were right. I was wrong. And you repent. And now it's not, it has nothing to do with your eternal redemption. It has nothing to do with your spirit being saved because it's already been sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14. You didn't lose your spirit salvation, but in the flesh you gave Satan an inroad. But when you repent and confess this forgiveness, this uh, power and anointing, the ability of God, the purity that is in your spirit comes out through your soul because you now have agreed with God and it flows into your body and it just purges you. It cleanses you of all of that sin. Sin gives Satan an inroad into your physical body and into your soulish mind and your emotions but it can't penetrate your spirit. Your spirit is still in right standing with God. So this has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. It's not God forgiving your sins individually. Again, if that's what it was, nobody would get every single sin confessed. Not even, some of us don't even acknowledge some of the things that we're doing. You got bad attitudes. You're depressed. You're discouraged. You're angry. You're bitter. You're in unbelief, which the Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You have all kinds of things that you just constantly live in. If this was talking about your eternal salvation between you and God, then again, it would be impossible to ever have a positive relationship or any assurance about your relationship with God. This is talking about when you knowingly have done something that is contrary to what God instructed you to do and you realize you gave Satan place in your life. How do you deal with that? You confess it. You say, God, you were right. I was wrong. You turn back. You get into agreement with God and start drawing on the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. So I believe that Christians should confess that, you know what, I was wrong. 
and tell the Lord, Father, I'm sorry, you were right, I was wrong, and confess. And when you do, it doesn't affect your eternal relationship with God at all, but it will affect your relationship with the devil. You now have turned your back on the devil and said, I renounce this, and you put yourself back in agreement with God, and you're cleansed from all of the damage that that sin has done to you. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.